So how how was uh, how was that for an intro? Because I'm proud of all of you for growing up with me. I know how tough it can be to look with hope and confidence in the years to come. And I just want to know, I love you just the way you are. And I'm grateful for you keeping dirt bikes in your life. It's such a good feeling to know that we are lifelong friends. Live from Pahrump, the dirt bike test shop, this is Tech Talk Taco Tuesday. We are going to talk about dirt bikes and dirt bike related products. Um, it's not uh, tequila tasting at Ramiro's anymore. It's uh, we're going to have a little taste of tequila here tonight in the uh, mm, in the shop, and we're going to get some of your questions. A few of you submitted questions. Um, I've got them right here on my run sheet. Talk about all the things that you need to know answers to. You want no BS answers uh, by somebody who is not getting paid by all the manufacturers and things like that. I'm um, not on the the docket or the dole for anybody, but I do have partners that work with me. And tonight, I'd like to thank Climb for uh, being a well. Since they've been in business, they've been helping out uh, me, Jimmy Lewis, and my off-road school. So. That's been a long time a partnership. Climb makes excellent off-road gear, period. Uh, Long-lasting, uh, well-thought-out, good, durable gear that when I'm riding for myself personally, when I'm not in front of a camera or a lot of times when I am in front of a camera, I'm wearing uh, Climb stuff. If you ever want to know specifics about why I wear what I wear, how I wear it, um, feel free to ask. That's always uh, another thing. Another Life, uh, long time um, sponsor of Jimmy Lewis Off Road Training. That's my school. I don't talk about much about that, but uh, I have one, an off road riding school. They're probably a sponsor too, because by having that school, it allows me to do this because <laughs> this isn't much of a paying gig at the moment, although it will be soon. Um, we've got some big things in the works. I keep saying that, and there's big things, so they take a long time to work on. We uh, also, Kenda, that's so Kenda has been. Um, helping us out and they make excellent tires. The good thing about tires is that you're going to be changing them all the time and they work differently for different people. People like different characteristics. I like Kenda tires out here. I run the Kenda Parker DTs on almost all of my bikes, uh, almost exclusively. And the other by the other tire I run quite a bit is the Kenda equilibrium, which is a soft gummy kind of trials esque combination tire. So um, if you are interested in something that's going to last a long time, both those tires, uh, I get easily a thousand miles um, out of a set of those and excellent tires, different traction situations. And the one thing I really like about those tires, especially the Parker DT front and the Parker DTs, I always run in the hard direction. It's a directional tire. They're excellent on the brakes. And if you know me, I can outbreak you because I have good tires and I practice it a lot. And that's why I'm faster and safer than you. Okay, <laughs> so uh, good to uh, see a lot of you out there. I see people popping into the chat room. Um, last week, we gave away a shirt to, where is Eric Holt? Got the shirt from last week. I'm going to send it out tomorrow because uh, I went riding. And that way, I didn't get um, all of my business done. That's probably why all these projects take a long time. Uh, to get done. They're big, big projects. <laughs> so um, we'll run through uh, some of the different things. But again, thanks to uh, Kenda and Climb. If you are industry people out there and you want to get back behind the show, uh, make this thing grow, uh, you want to get in now while it's cheap because <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow and it's going to get bigger. And I talk to your customers. I talk to your customers on this podcast. I talk to your customers when I answer emails. I talk to your customers when your customers talk to the other customers because they heard this guy who really knew what he was talking about. And it's this friend word of mouth um, sharing that really goes a long ways. And um, generally, I would say people trust what I say, um, what we say at Dirt Bike Test. We take a lot of um, responsibility in giving excellent information. We don't just spit out product tests and regurgitate uh 
sponsor stuff. We only say what we feel is correct because I want everybody to trust us. So that's the way we work here. Um, another uh, shout out is to a good friend, uh, a kid that uh, I'm probably responsible for his dirt bike addiction. His name is Ryan Hanna. He is, uh, well, he wanted to be a professional motorcycle racer at one point in his life, which was a big mistake because he's actually an artist. And I want you to check out if you're getting ready for this. Um, somebody, somebody on the chat, go ahead and uh, take take this, write this down. It's www.artbrewtour.com. And so Ryan actually does a lot of crazy um, art, and I never knew he was an artist. I I. I thought he was just a, I thought he was going to be a 909er because this one time after he helped me at my school, uh, I had to give him gas money because he spent all his money getting a big tattoo um, of his name and I think it's Old English or something on his on his back and he didn't have enough money to drive home. Uh, and I gave him a nice pat on the back right on the scabs. <laughs> and uh, But anyways, uh, www.artbrewtour.com. Um, he's up in the San Francisco Bay Area. He did an awesome awesome uh portrait of uh ricky brabeck um from the dakar rally and it's it's an artistic interpretation he's been doing some different uh, moto uh stuff and it's really cool to see uh, he actually reached out for, to me to send him one of my favorite photos and i haven't done it because i went riding so uh shout out to ryan he's also when you see some of those logos the one that we used last week that talk, tech talk taco tuesday he drum that up. I don't know how long it took. Um, it was pretty cool. It kind of symbolized what we're doing here and I'm sure we'll see more from him in the future. But let me tell you the, the Ryan Hanna story <laughs> when he decided to be a pro motorcycle. He bought my guy 90 shoot 93. I don't know. It was a KTM LC four rally kind of adventure. It was a KTM. It was the original KTM 620 adventure with that big giant gas tank. And he signed up for Vegas Torino, just out of the blue. And uh, I, that was going to be his first race. Just, I'm going to do Vegas Torino. And his car blew, his transmission blew up on the way. He used AAA to tow him to the start line. Um, he, he he took off in the race. I think it was one of the ones that was a couple days long. It was when they split it in half or something. And I think the bike caught on fire or spilt gas all over his nuts. It, it's, it's, a, it's a great reason not to do a race like that as your first race, but, uh, lessons learned. <laughs> the kid is, uh, really turned out to be something. And, uh, um, I think motorcycles made him a stronger and better person. And that's, uh, kind of some of the stuff that, um, I like to, to talk about, you know, it's, it's not just crashing and boonie bashing. It's, it's life lessons that are learned. Um, and one of these days I'll tell you why I ride motorcycles, um, what keeps them interesting and exciting for me. So, um, I'm going to get right into some of the questions. Uh, so later on the show, just if you want to start priming yourself with some of the questions, I'm going to talk about four strokes, kind of like the, the rebirth of four strokes, because I was there, uh, when it was happening, enjoying and suffering, uh, all the way, uh, along the way we had, I was riding with a good buddy of mine, Dave Donatoni. This weekend, uh, we were testing the Yamaha WR450, which is parked right behind me, and also the uh, getting the final touches on the KTM 350 EXC um, done. Uh, I wanted to have a few other people ride it in the state that they win. Both bikes were still going with the Yamaha, but um, kind of finishing up on that KTM. And me and Dave were talking about some of the old times, and it brought back some really good memories and some uh, interesting memories. <laughs> so... We our, our two brain cells they 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 you know they zzz like that and things start working. So uh, we're going to talk about some old four stroke stuff uh, and the other thing I wanted to bring up. Ah, that'll probably fill up the hour. Who knows? We'll see um, what we get to. But uh, Garrett Ortiz uh, asked a question. He said, "What are your likes and dislikes of the KTM 200?" So uh, obviously he knows I'm a KTM 200 fan. I miss it since it's gone. He's thinking of pulling the trigger on a 2019 Beta 200 RR to sharpen his skills and to have something for the wife to ride when I'm not riding it. So you mean you're buying your wife a motorcycle for yourself? Never done that. Not even 35 out of the 40 times I bought bikes. Um, so you wondered how you like the KTM 200 and maybe use it as a similar comparison since the Beta is brand new. I'll be keeping my 
2018 500RRS for dual sporting light adventure bikes ride. Well, it sounds like you're a beta guy, so you're going to have no problem um, like adapting <laughs> to a beta. It's They're good bikes. There's nothing wrong with betas. In fact, I was trying to get Big John in here because he used to be a beta rider, and now he's a Honda rider. That was his bike I was pulling the clutch out of when we started the show. And uh, But I since the KTM 200 is gone, there is no reason why... Uh, a beta 200 wouldn't be a really good choice and I, i'm kind of in the same position where i bought one of the last year ktm 200s because i i love those bikes i like how light they are and how nimble they feel and how indestructible they are and all the good things about them and so uh i was i was kind of thinking maybe i should get like a 150 xc but and they had a 150 XCW for a while, which is, you know, I, and I don't like the linkage. So for trail riding, but it just doesn't have the torque. The 200 has that extra 50 CCs really makes a big difference in torque. So, uh, I went with the 200 and I'm pretty sure that beta will have a good engine uh, package and a good engine character. I, I haven't, I haven't ridden one, so I can't say specifically what it's going to be like. I don't know if it's built off their 125 or if it's you know a, a sleeve down, I haven't looked at it that closely. I usually don't spend a lot of time studying the spec sheet. I usually just hop on a bike and ride it, and then go look at the spec sheet to see if the stuff that the I don't like them to fill my mind up with the the PR speak before I get an impression because it can it can it it doesn't alter my stuff. But I I like the stuff that, that really stands out to stand out. I don't want it to be spelled out for me, so I start looking for it when I'm testing stuff. So, um. I think a KTM 200 would be really good, uh, especially since you're already in the beta family. Um, and somebody just mentioned it's built off the 125. See, that's why we have you experts out there, or at least people know a few things. Um, the But you're already a beta guy. You, you get it. I don't think it's going to be a bad choice. I'm supposed to be getting one of those in the not-too-distant future to test. I know that they were um, getting one prepped up, and we will work on that in the near future. Uh, so let me know how you like it. That's I always like feedback um, uh, when we do this kind of stuff. Next question: Chance McCamish asked, "Do seal savers work?" Um, so seal savers, I believe he's talking about the ones that are in the neoprene sleeves, and it's interesting because just last week we used a thing called the I forget the name. Uh, it's there's a package right over on the table over there someplace. Um, so the uh, the the other so anything you can do to keep the, what really kills seals is like fine mud sticky uh, mud stuff that gets starts getting packed up and rammed up into the seal and so the so there's inside the fork there's the main seal and then there is the the dust wiper which is kind of like a pre seal and the seal saver is like another layer of protection that goes over it now. I know a lot of people that are really big fans of them and they have good luck. Um, out here in the West, we don't have that much mud and we don't really have too many fork seal problems. Most of our fork seal problems come from rocks getting kicked up like backwards from the tire, getting kicked and coming uh, to, you know, putting little dings in the backsides of the forks and then those start um, cutting into the, uh, cutting into the, the fork seal and kind of ripping it. At that point, you need to have protection for the entire leg and the seal saver only does the top part. It kind of just wipes the dust and the debris off. So in your muddy conditions, I think it can definitely help anything that pre wipes the fork would be good. The one that we are testing literally covers the whole fork leg, almost like one of those fork boots in the old days on the conventional forks. So, um, I'm pretty sure that they work. I'm sure there's some, maybe there's a little bit of stiction on them depending on how tight they are and the tighter are, the better they wipe, the looser they are, the less they wipe. Um, and I saw someone mention in the chat, they were t asking, uh, was I talking about the fork seal tool, which no, I was talking about the, the, the wiper. If you are asking about the seal saver, hold on one second, watch this. I think this is the seal mate. So either it's a well-worn seal mate I, it's it's backwards on the thing actually there used to be a side that was a hook there you go. it's pretty worn out 
Which way did I go? There, oh, there's the camera. I'm putting it, <laughs> pointing at the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. So this is a Sealmate. This is the Motion Pro um, sells these. Um, man, this one's haggard. I let my guys use it, and then they uh, they cleaned out a fork seal with it, um, and uh, a bunch of fork seals with them. And we use those when we get a, like a leaky fork seal. That's the first step to check that. Actually, the first thing they do is I have them check the backside for nicks. If there's a nick, that thing's useless because the seal's already torn. That's why it's leaking. If they're kind of bunged up with uh, debris, these are excellent. So you can use these. It, like if it wasn't torn, it usually has like a hooked end. You put the hook end up there and you squirt a little contact cleaner and you know, or suspension clean would be the best thing um, to squirt in there. Uh, and then uh, it can suck the dirt out and make the seal stick again. So those are that's another really good thing to kind of as a preventative thing to fix your forks. Um, excellent uh, little tool. Uh, maybe someone at Motion Pro is listening or it'll get back to them that I am on my last leg here. Really, really last leg. I, I have all their fork seal tools, so I don't need that. I just change the fork seals now, right? <laughs> so they, they, they make awesome um, uh, fork tools and all kinds of stuff like that. So, okay. So do seal savers work? I think so. Um, you know, there's lots of different options for that. It really depends on, on where you're at and stuff. Uh, Instagram questions. I, I was I went on to the Instagram account and um, actually uh, figured out that some people are asking questions there. Although, like, Instagram people are not Facebook people, so they're not here, so you don't have to worry about them coming and, like, sneaking into our little chat room. One of these days, we'll probably switch the whole thing over to Instagram, or maybe we'll do a whole nother show on Instagram. Who knows? Um, it just depends. Running with beef. See, here's here's the problem I have with Instagram. I don't know who running with beef is. Is that your real name? Or I it just I I hate like chat room names and form board names where it you're not you're not attached to anything. I mean, I know you can do that on Facebook too, but generally before I answer a question, especially when they're good questions, a lot of times I go see who's asking it to try to get a see if it's a real person, you know, not not running with beef. I just don't, I don't know who it is. I, and I, I, I can't remember. I wouldn't even remember anyways. I'm not like the CIA. I can't remember who your names are and stuff. How is that motor for a 6'2", 255 pound guy? And I think he was asking about, what was he asking about? Which bike? Oh, the KTM 350. That's right. It was attached to, um, uh, what's the Instagram name for dirt bike test? Somebody just asked that. It would be Dirt Bike Test <laughs> on Instagram. Yeah. We actually go by our real name. Uh, we don't um, want uh, we don't want to be running around. I don't have any fake accounts that I know of. Um, we, we're not masquerading as something else. It's, it's us. How is that three KTM 350 motor for a 6'2", 255-pound guy? Uh, for the bigger guys out there. Here is the thing that I've learned over the years um, in testing is that the heavier you are, the more power um, you are going to require. Um, it's and it's it's not so much like um, trying to trying to figure out how to explain this. The weight seems like it kills the snap and the rate of acceleration. You're heavier. You put more weight on the bike. You get better traction. It doesn't, it doesn't snap and respond as much because it just doesn't have the, the torque to go. So like if you're actually in the throttle and you're just, you know, rolling on and accelerating, it's going to be fine. You're just going to, you're going to be lacking some of that hit or snap or, or pull and the lower power levels. It's harder for that smaller displacement motor to, it doesn't have the torque to pull you as quickly. So it, it kind of depends on how you ride and where you ride in the power band. So and I always get into this with with riders when they start talking about snap and throttle response and 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 how much power a bike has. It's like where are you riding it? Like where? And this is the cool thing with all this fuel injection tuning is you can adjust the points in the power band where the bike you know responds better. So a bigger guy to get the same roll on and response on a three fifty might have to be a thousand RPMs higher than a you know a guy who's. 30 pounds lighter and another guy who's 30 more pounds lighter could be a thousand RPMs lower and still get the same throttle response. It's not to say it's not there. It's just not at the same 
place in the power band. So is that right for you? And I, I like lugging a bike. So a lot of times for me, when a, when, a, when a smaller displacement bike doesn't have that torque, I feel like I have to just rev it a little bit more. We're not talking like crazy revs. It's just 500, 1,000 RPMs more to get that same throttle response. So I rarely say a bike doesn't have enough power. I just kind of modify where I'm riding the bike at, you know, what part of the power band I'm at to get that kind of a throttle response. So I think that motor is fine for a 6'2", 255-pound guy if he's riding at the right RPM level. Um, and they say six pounds is a horsepower or something like that. I remember there was a saying about that in, in uh, six pounds is a horsepower. And so you start thinking, well, I could lose 10 pounds, and then I got, you know, almost two horsepower. <laughs> That's a cheap way to get horsepower. So, uh, yeah, especially if you're, uh, like me, I'm really trying to watch my uh, girlish figure here. They say the best thing I could do would be to uh, cut out the beers. <laughs> Good luck. That's the last resort. I'm, I'm not going to be 165 pounds like uh, Dave D anytime soon. Mm. Uh, so, um, no peeps tonight. We're back on the hams. Um, I didn't get my peeps sponsorship. Uh, my ma my agent uh, dropped the ball on that one again. Uh, those fork savers from Best Rest Products were Best Rest Best Rest Products uh, fork savers. If you're uh, interested, um, let's see. I'm looking at the thing. Jibber J is out there. He's over in Hawaii. He's probably, you know, working his Cush Union job. Wish thinking about snowboarding again. Um, I got a couple more questions here. Um, keep getting questions on the Nitro Moose. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Nitro Moose. They, they have been, I've been, had very good success with them. Um, there were some early ones that they were in. A lot of the ones that I had were prototype ones, so I don't know... Um, the failures I had and stuff, I'm pretty sure, and that was, God, that's been five or six years now that, um, I've had any quote failures on them and they were, they failed during ridiculous durability tests that, you know, hundred miles an hour for 15 minutes. Uh, and it says right in the box, don't go over 80 miles an hour. But I was on a dry lake bed holding my KTM 500 wide open for 15 minutes. And, uh, and finally uh, got them to start, uh, failing, you know, shredding. And it didn't happen while it was going. You had to stop and go through a couple heat cycles. And then all of a sudden they were bad. Those old time. So Matt Wiss, W H I S Matt Wiss asked, would you use a nitro moose for a ride? Like the tour of Idaho to minimize packed weight, tire irons, tubes, air, and remove one potential failure point. Yes, absolutely. Um, I have had easily, um, over a thousand miles on some sets, uh, closer to two on other sets. And I am pretty sure that I could get the 1600 miles. And especially since there's a lot of slower speed stuff and you never really, you don't really have to go to the high speed. Uh, I'm pretty sure I could get, uh, the kind of distance I need out of a single set. Now, that being said, I still would carry tire irons and a spare tube. I carried Oh, I'd have to look at the, I'd have to look at the video, watch the video. I'm pretty sure I carried two front tubes or maybe a front and a rear, or maybe it was two fronts and a rear. I don't remember exactly what I carried, um, when I did that, but I know I was, I had, I was prepared for it. And luckily I didn't have to do anything with my tire. Actually, the only thing I had my ECU come disconnected during that trip. Um, you can watch the video. It's on the YouTube and all that stuff. Um, I had my ECU come disconnected and I don't think I put a wrench onto that bike the entire rest of the tour, like not even adjusting a chain. So uh, that's a well-prepped bike, number one, a good durable bike, number two, and I was using nothing that I didn't have plenty of experience with. And I ran tubes because at that time I just didn't have the experience um, to to run a moose. I just wasn't that super confident to, uh, to do it at the time. But now for sure I would with the harder ones that last a lot longer, easily. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. Um, and the other part was, do they have applications outside of racing? Absolutely. I run them in quite a few bikes. Uh, generally it's kind of, it's like I, I have a fleet of rental bikes here. And as we start running through them, um, sometimes we'll have a test batch that'll come and we'll throw some in 
And then when they get broken in on the rental bikes on after the first tire wears off, I usually pull them out and throw them in my personal bike. And then I'll run them till the tire wears out maybe once, maybe twice. And now we're talking about like a 1500 mile, you know, cause we're easily getting at least 500 miles on a tire. And then I give them to my buddy, crazy Nate, who, uh, they're, they're, they're mush. And he puts them in his bike that he rides up in the super tight technical trails and he's a putt putter and he wants to run a flat tire and the moose works perfect. And they last, I don't, I don't think he's ever worn one out. Usually I have to take the damn, the, the, the threads start coming out of the tire and I have to steal it back. And then it's time for a new one, but who knows how much miles he's put on it by the time they're done. So, um, yes. And I, I do feel that the, the, the nitro moose lasts a little bit longer than uh, some of the other ones out there. Um, uh, Michelin would probably be the the next one. Uh, they have a slightly different feel. You can read about it when we tested them on the website. Um, we kind of get into detail on on some of the stuff about the feel, but I won't go into that here. And that is it on the the moose question. Um, and then okay, so I'm seeing some questions about the soft moose. Um, let's see, the soft moose is just like they say; it's a softer one. Um, I have not done the long-term durability test on those yet. We're working on it, um, but I have a few of them in tires right now that we're kind of logging hours on. I have tested them when they start. I want to say they start because I, I, I think this, the the hard ones start to me at about 15, 14, 15 psi. Kind of depends on the tire, um, what you're running them in, and what they feel like in the beginning, and then they and then the hard ones kind of break down to about they go to like. 13, 12, 13, and then, and then when they kind of start getting worn, they'll go down to like 10. Um, the, uh, the soft one seems like when I put it in, it started at like 12 or 13 and, and I put one in a, in a equilibrium, can equilibrium, which is a pretty soft sidewall. And I have one in a DT and that one felt a little bit stiffer, but then again, that's a stiffer carcass tire. So um, that's why I put them in two different tires so I can feel how the tire breaks down versus how the moose breaks down. Cause I know how the tire breaks down. Um, and it's just going to take some time to ride those things and get a, get a, um, kind of, uh, comparison as it were. So let's see here. I'm going to scroll through the questions real quick. Um, uh, let's see. Chris is not an expert. Well, you answered my question. That makes you an expert on that question, so I'm happy with that. Um, let's see. George, yeah, I answered your question. Let's see. Seal savers. Um, also retain dirt that scratches the fork leg. Interesting, Matt. Yeah. Um, so if, yeah, it, yeah not. Nah, it's like sort of like sandpaper, like the seal savers acting like sandpaper. I, I could take a little bit of that, um, I guess, but I have not... Uh, use them that much to notice that we don't have a lot of mud what feed are you listening to in your headset <laughs> okay uh let's see not a web page like your facebook what no let's see who's the chp officer we've got cops in the room uh i didn't do any speeding today at all let's see um let's see have you tr okay that question uh let's see Wow, what language is that? <laughs> I can't even pronounce your name, and I have no idea what you said. Um, I should pin that comment to the top of the page, right? <laughs> hey, Alex, Alex, uh, another kid that uh, I've helped out of a couple tough times. Have I tested the Mako 360 bar mount, Garrett asks. Yes, I have. Um, I actually did some development testing with them uh, in the early days when they were just kind of getting it going. Um, they knew I was a fan of the flex bars. And so they, they sent some stuff out here for me to test. Um, and we are constantly going where they was at the phase where they were really learning a lot about elastomers and some different, um, uh, just different feelings that you can get. And, um, I know they've improved since then. I have not had a chance to try them, uh, since then. Uh, they haven't sent, I tried that and they were also really big in the foot peg, the isolated foot pegs. I did a, a lot of testing with them and, um, their foot pegs are probably the most, uh, vibration dampening isolated foot pegs out there. 
uh, and they they were again we were doing a lot of elastomer testing and changing stuff. So uh, I noticed that um, they're getting a lot, pretty popular on the GNCCs. They've got some top guys running those things. Um, it's a small company, just kind of a guy that was kind of starting it up out of his garage and really trying to make it big with it. And I'm I'm pretty sure he's getting there. But I think if you're looking for there's a lot of different options in that vibration isolation uh, shock dampening stuff you know in the chassis uh and with chassis getting stiffer and these rides getting more aggressive uh, i think it's a a pretty you know it's going to be important to customize and tune your bike they all work a little bit different um they think the thing about that is there's a little bit of difference between like flex bars and the way that the mako works and the way that the the you know some of the bar mounts like the brp bar mount um how they how they work on the uh they all have a little bit of different feel and so if i i run a lot of my bikes i run the brp bar mount and the flex handlebars and i i literally have to run that stuff if i'm gonna ride like multiple days because my wrists are pretty bad and the so for me i'm running a combination of the brp mount a lot of times this is used in conjunction with a Scott's damper. So I got to build the whole stack here. It's a whole system, the Scott's damper. So it's a, it allows me to submount the damper and then the BRP actually works on the vibration. And depending on which elastomer you run, it changes. So like there's a, there's red and blue. And I think I'm pretty sure I got to get this right. I'm looking over at my bike right now. I think I run red on my four strokes and then I run blue on the two-stroke, and it seems like that's the best for the where the bike's running, the vibration. The two-stroke's the 200, by the way, so it is a higher RPM than I would probably... I'd have to test it on a 300 or 200, uh, or a 300 or 250 to see if it was the same. But that kind of gets rid of some of the vibration feel in the handlebars. The flex bars, for me, do not really do much in the vibration department. The flex bars absorb the impacts. And I've always said that the flex bars will make a bad fork feel good. Like I can get away with a stiffer setting on my fork and tune that out kind of with my flex bar. And especially when I'm getting the really sharp hits or the big giant G outs, uh, the flex bars are awesome. I remember lightly what the Mako did was it actually had a little bit more movement in some different axes the flex bar just kind of went up and down and the Mako had some side to side twist and some rotational. And this was something they were working on being able to tune a little bit better. And I don't know if they've done that. I'm pretty sure they must have, because I don't think any like racer guy would like any sort of that vague feel. And I was running some pretty soft elastomers with it. Cause they knew that uh, they probably thought I was an old man and I wanted like cushy, mushy stuff, which some people do. But it, there was a little bit of movement and kind of some different ways. But the the Mako seemed like it actually did a lot more for vibration than the actual bump impact or what kind of what I was looking for. So it might have kind of been doing two things at once, but um, it's, a, it's a matter of preference. And they're, like I say, both good products, uh, both good for... Uh, testing um you know something to, it'd be really good to do a comparison or a shootout with those two things and try to explain it better so i can answer these questions better because right now i'm going off of an old product and something that i use all the time so <laughs> i've got a i've got a bias on that and i'll be the first guy to tell you that that that's you know i from trying this different stuff i've kind of settled on my setting and that's not to say it's the best setting in the world except for me but um, I know how it works, and that's um, how I would use it. So uh, let's see. Chris Smith, the expert, <laughs> said, I thought Flexburs were kind of gimmicky until I tried them. I don't notice much during the ride, to be honest, but feel better after the ride. That's exactly the way they're supposed to work. Amazing. <laughs> that's, you, you, know what, you know what one of the best, uh, the true tests of a product is, is when you actually go and use it and you forget about using that product. You don't, you, you, you just, it just does something good. You don't, you don't notice it. That's half the challenge. Because a lot of times you put stuff on and it, you notice it and maybe you want to, but if you just start riding and everything's good and you don't, you're not thinking about whatever that problem was you were trying to solve. That's the key to a good, good product test. Um, uh, am I done eating? What? 
Let's see. Experience with the tube saddle. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I have an experience with the tube saddle. <laughs> so the tube saddle is this, is this interesting guy. Uh, he, I think he was a lawyer by trade. Uh, I met him at some, some races and stuff, and he has this thing that was actually designed to prevent pinch flats. It's a foam insert that kind of cups the rim, and it separates the gap between the, um, between the, uh, where the, you know, so it, it makes it really hard to get the tube in between the rim and the bead. And then, but, and then it kind of goes up a little bit on the sidewall where evidently pinch flats might occur. So we had some and we tested them and I saw, and, and this is, this is our testing, absolutely 100% no difference in the occurrence of pinch flats whatsoever. Our pinch flats were happening from the tire compressing down all the way to the rim and really above where that thing, that tube saddle was working. The tube saddle made it a little bit more difficult to mount the tire because there's a, there's a technique to it. And um, it, it, it did help if your spoke nipple, you know, the spoke nipples are going to get pushed through or stuff like it. It's going to protect it down there, but actually preventing the pinch flaps, um, I saw no evidence of that. And so, yeah, I, I tested it and um, wasn't, uh, I mean, and, and they, they, you know, they lasted a long time. I used to get frustrated when I forget that I had one in a wheel and I had to take the damn tire off and I couldn't figure out why it was so damn difficult. Uh so uh, not a not a fan of that product, although I do know a lot of people that uh, swear by them. So um, maybe they just are getting different kinds of pinch flats. Uh, I don't get pinch flats from installation problems. I make sure that my tube is not pinched when I put it in there. I have a really good system for buttering it up with some baby powder, doing all the right things. So I'm I that isn't an issue for me. Um, so maybe that's the difference. Maybe that, that other people are, they're eliminating that, that problem of the tube getting underneath there. I would guess that's the uh, proper, proper answer for that. Uh, okay, I'm going to run back to the questions here. Um, yeah, that, that guy is interesting to chat with. And he, he made some, he made these little uh, cool little tools that were, the ones that hold the bead down in the in the tire, he gave them to me one night uh, out at King of the Motos. He always he always seemed to approach me at the absolute wrong time. Like I had ten other things going on, like I was trying to put on an extreme enduro, and then he was like, "Hey, you got to try these things." And <laughs> I go, "I promise, I will." <laughs> but uh, anyhow, let's see if we're up here. Why is this thing doing what it's doing now? Uh, I got a little fly in here. Do you see the little fly? <laughs> this shop is not sanitary right now. Uh, take a breath, Jimmy. Uh, four, four stroke stories. I'm going to tell those. Uh, a couple other things I want to get to. Uh, oh, I wanted to, okay. I'm going to announce right now live on, on this thing here, the dirt bike test intern summer program. So, if you know somebody who is getting uh, has a summer break, is uh, wants to be a motorcycle product tester or a test rider, or maybe has some aspirations of wanting to be a motorcycle racer, which is really, really crazy, right, Ryan? You might turn into an artist. Maybe you hit your head hard enough and you become an artist. But if you want to be an intern out here, I want you to reach out to us. Um, we are in the need for more content, more smart people, more trustworthy people to help us out. And I don't want a bunch of old dudes, uh, because, uh, I want to get some fresh young perspectives because a lot of the technologies and stuff that we're using, um, the young kids grasp it a little bit quicker. I need people that are interested in, um, shooting video, taking pictures, editing video writing product tests, uh, following my ass around with a camera and uh, shooting some of the stuff I do and then going back and editing it so I don't have to do that because <laughs> I'm old and worn out and uh, I'm trying to learn all that thing, all those things and I forget uh, too many other things that I'm supposed to be doing. So here's how you do it. If you want to be an intern, I want you to write me 
a product test. So find something that you know about. Let's say you know about um, uh, a recluse clutch. Maybe that's what you know about. Or maybe you know about a tire you've used or a pair of gloves or anything. Something that you're familiar with. And I want you to look at the way that we write our product tests. And I want you to write me a product test. That's how you get started is do that. And send some photos too that look like we could publish it. That's I, Every time I get asked, hey, man, I want to be a test writer. That's what I ask you to do. And then what we're going to do is we will have, uh, if you're into it, if it works out, um, we are going, I have a place you can stay. <laughs> I have a place you can work. Uh, I'll cover some of your costs to exist. And I'll put you on top of a lot of brand new dirt bikes that you can test. But that comes last. Yeah, that's it's not it's not go out and ride brand new dirt bikes and stuff. Um, so we're, ideally, we're looking for somebody who doesn't have a job, who's uh, has some free time in their life, somebody who is committed, and maybe we can turn it into something. But if you're doing this, I also want you to be going to school. Um, I want you to be taking some college classes, community classes, or going back to high school and and uh, staying engaged in that because uh, this dirt bike stuff is not exactly a road to prosperity <laughs> and education is. So um, if you know anybody, if you know any kids that are into the doing that, um, let me know. We're looking for that. That's our DBT intern summer program. And I promise you, it will be hot. <laughs> It'll be hot out here. Here's, here's how it works. We ride in the morning and we ride at night. Yeah, and the rest of the day, you sit inside of a swamp coolered room <laughs> and crank out stuff on a computer. Uh, so that's it. Um, another thing I wanted to run over is somebody asked me, uh, they're like, Hey, how, how do you guys test bikes? It was, it was kind of a simple, a simple question. How do you test bikes? And, and I, I don't know if the question was kind of like, how do you get test bikes or how do you test bikes? But one of the things that we do is we test bikes in the, 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 the way that they're supposed to be used. And same thing, we test products in the way that they're supposed to be used. The bikes are easy because bikes are sold for a certain re reason, like a motocross bike. We test motocross bikes on motocross tracks in motocross conditions. Oftentimes we race them. Uh, we give them to people that race and they race them. And so we don't very often take a stock motocross bike, ride it off road, and then tell you how the suspension sucks because how are you supposed to design, you know, so you've got to test stuff in the, the, the realm it was designed for. So when we get a stock dual sport bike, we try to ride it stock for a certain portion of time because many people do that. And then in as part of the testing, we will go through some of the normal modifications people will do. And so we test it in the, in the, in the area it was supposed to be used in. But once we start modifying or changing things, I mean, other than, you know, doing the clickers and the adjustments that you're allowed to do or able to do stock, then you're all of a sudden you're personalizing it, you know, and if there is some sort of a problem or a characteristic that sort of stands out, then we'll go to some sort of a modification that might um, allow it to adjust it. So sometimes we'll do the project bikes on the site, which are, um, you know, chasing down some of the issues that we had. Maybe there's a bike, like there's an RMZ 450 uh, upgrade on the website right now where we complained about the shock and the suspension in general. So we went and worked on that and we wanted a little bit more power. So we went and worked on that. So we do these things that are pointed to a certain reason. We don't just grab a bike and say, here's the 10 things you have to do to this bike. Um, if I was going to give you 10 things to do to a bike, I guarantee you seven of them would be free. It would just be setup stuff that th that particular bike responds to, um, and it's really easy to find things that that do a specific purpose and make a big difference. But when we, you know, when we go test these things, and it's not just one rider in twenty minutes, you know, riding around and then giving you some, uh, you know, some instant feedback. You know, we we use them, we work on them. I take the air filter out and clean it like I'm supposed to. I don't send it back to the manufacturer after it's been ridden for four hours and go, uh, it needs tires and, uh, yeah, that thing, you got to clean it. Oh, uh, the air filter. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't do that. We do it because 
a normal owner does that kind of stuff and has to know. And so you know which ones are a little bit easier to work on and ones are a little harder to work on. And then we can make those kind of statements when we're talking about the tests and when we do comparisons, we give you good information on that stuff. So it's, it's in the same thing with product testing in, you know, we try to is the best we can is throw a durability aspect into all of this stuff. And that's why I can kind of come down pretty hard when somebody says, well, the thing says the valve adjusts need to be done every four hours. And I'm like, I've ridden mine for 200 hours and I haven't even looked at it. Um, there's, it gives me, it gives us, it gives me some background to make those kind of statements to let you know that this works this way and this works that way and, and stuff, um, you know, it's a good, it's a good basis for giving you the right kind of information. Sometimes in the product testing side of things, we actually, we abuse it. We'll kind of go a little bit past the limit to try to figure out a way to test the durability. Like the other day I was smacking myself with a, I think it was a shoe through the padding on a, on a vest. I hurt my booby. Uh, <laughs> testing the difference between a, an Under Armour and, and not. I mean, that's not normal, but it's like I hadn't crashed in it and I wanted to talk about it and have some explanation, so I had to kind of simulate it. You know, just like when you see some of those um, commercials where they're dragging somebody on their jeans behind a truck, you know, to say that this Kevlar line something or other works. I mean, it's sometimes you go a little bit outside, but, you you know, it's it's a way to simulate maybe something bad happening when, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. But if stuff's using normal, normal use, if we use it in normal use and there's a problem with it, yeah, sure. You're going to hear about it, but that rarely happens anymore. Most of these companies do a pretty good job of developing and testing things that go way beyond what, um, you know, the ordinary person would put, put it through. Um, so sometimes we have to kind of push the limits and, and fudge it. So, um, I mean, when you're, when you're talking about that kind of stuff, you know, you see, and the service intervals are a big deal um, for most of the guys now when, you know, they look at the bike and, and they're like all worried about that stuff. And it's a good, it's a good guideline to start with. But like, as you start learning, I've drained my oil after that 10 hours and it came out and looked perfect. Well, go 12, go 15, you know, take, take a step with it. And that's the kind of stuff we do when we're, we're in testing. So, um, that's how we how we test stuff. We have a lot of different ability li- rider level riders ride things. Um, we get their feedback. Uh, we make setting changes on the bike for particular riders. We played a lot with the suspension on that WR450 this weekend, and I was really happy with it. But I hadn't ridden on that slow and tight technical kind of really rocky stuff, and I was kind of surprised that. Um, you know, going back and forth between the KTM, which has sprung a lot lighter and a little more active, how much I liked the KTM in comparison to the Yamaha, which I've always really liked the Yamaha. And I'm like, oh. And so, and it was mostly uh, my buddy Dave, who's the pickiest. He's got to carry a screwdriver with him, and he was, like, clicking and doing this and that. And he, like, almost didn't want to because he knew how much I liked it. And then, you know, we're now we're moving the forks a little bit and, you know, in the, in the clamps, trying to get a little more weight on the front wheel, just interesting stuff. And I wished I would have had time to go ride it today. Cause I'd like to ride it back in the conditions that I originally set it up for, which originally set it up means I didn't change anything from the way it was delivered. Cause it was so good. So it'll be interesting to, to do some back to back and get some further testing on this. Uh, that is, that's the stuff that we, that we test. I mean, it's, it's just, simple stuff and and then really kind of going that extra mile to 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 know the bike to know the information so when i'm asked a question i don't go uh uh, well may um i don't know if if i have i don't know it means i need to go test it more and do some more stuff so that is the uh way we test let's see here um somebody likes it 125 degrees no you don't no it's it's really not it's not that good um Let's see. Um, rolling down the thing. Eduardo Ross asked, 2019 KTM XC450F versus 2019 Honda 450 for a dual bike. Um, Eduardo, man, did we do that comparison last year? I know we were working on it. Maybe it never got written up. Um, so 
I th- you know, I think we did it a couple years ago, maybe a, a couple years back. We did those bikes, and they haven't changed a whole lot. Um, I'm going to go back, and I'm pretty sure off the top of my head, the KTM is kind of the horsepower king, and it's limited by, what was it? It was, um, boy, that's a, that's a, it's, you're racking my brain. I'm so into Yamahas and KTMs right now. I forgot about the, comparing it to the Honda, the XCF. It's, it's on the website. Check dirtbiketest.com. Search those two bikes, and I promise you, you'll come up with some information. That's, uh, I hate to make you go type into a computer at least like probably 37 letters or something. And it could provide you with the information that you'd like. Actually, go to our website and type it into that search engine. Um, or you might go to something like uh, Dirt Rider and get really bad information <laughs> by guys who tested it for like 10 minutes. They didn't keep my, uh, they didn't keep my ethics over there after I left. So, because they're not Mr. Rogers. Yeah, they don't love you. Not like me. <laughs> so, um, okay. Um, Fred Burris, he's been spooked by the intervals on some modern bikes. Fred, don't be. They're really, really good. Craig Hunter joined. Craig, where's your kid? What's he been doing? Get that. Get Trevor back on the gas. I know he's been broken, but that he should have wrote like 20 product tests uh, the whole time he was, uh, yeah, the whole time he was uh, injured. And I don't know why you can't type with a broken wrist um but he did test a mobius brace and that should be going up on the site uh hopefully in the next day or two (laughs) he uh yeah he tested a wrist break wrist brace coming back from his broken wrist uh i had to do i i i I saw the copy today and hopefully there's some photos that go along with it and that kind of information will go up there um so that's how we test bikes and now i'm going to talk about four strokes for the last uh Six minutes of this uh, this podcast. I'm going to have another sip of beer. Ian Young has his JCR Honda CR450FX for sale. Is Ian's bike a JCR bike? I don't think it is, actually. But um, it's probably a good bike. Uh, probably pops really mean willies. <laughs> that was a mean inside joke, by the way. Uh just leave it to me to throw trash and gas on the fire. Um, so uh, the reason I'm going to talk about four strokes is because last week we brought up the Cannondale. The Cannondale. So remember, this is the this was the future of four strokes. The Cannondale MX400. Um, I was one of the first journalists to ride it. Um, shortly after... Uh, shortly after... Dirt Rider picked it as bike of the year before they ever rode it. <laughs> so, um, and this was back in uh, August of 2000. So, uh, I mean, we flew out to Pennsylvania or someplace like that. I actually went out there with Kevin Cameron, who is the technical editor at Cycle World. Still is. Actually, man, do they regurgitate his stories. But they're awesome. Um, if Cycle World does one good thing is put Kevin Cameron's stuff up and read his stuff. It's it's awesome. He has a incredible way of breaking down very technical things and explaining them in layman terms, and then just going off on a tangent that makes you very interested in whatever mechanical um, terms. But anyways, I went out there with Kevin because they wanted somebody that that was really technical. I was just a, a wrist at the time, mostly. I could I was learning still uh, about all this stuff, but to have you know Kevin there to break down really a lot of the stuff and it was interesting to see how much he paid attention to what I thought and what I said because he couldn't ride the bikes at the time he wasn't a a dirt bike rider and uh, wasn't really interested in that and at that time I was still kind of pro level at motocross and stuff and um, it was uh, that was kind of the future of four strokes but guess what it wasn't that much of a future because this is from a dirt bike magazine uh test look at that that is a Husaberg, and now we're getting back to like the early 90s so this is probably seven or eight years I, I don't know exactly which year this is somebody on the forum will probably identify what year this one is um four stroke force remember so this is back when this is back when uh husky broke off and went to italy 
or the Italians bought <laughs> the Husky and these crazy guys, the four stroke guys, um, went ahead and took over and made this company called Husaberg. They took essentially, hold on, hold on. They took this thing, which this is the Italian one. So that's a TE610. This is the Italian version of the old Swedish version of the four strokes. So all this stuff really started in the late 80s, 88, 89. The idea of a lightweight four stroke kind of coming back, making a return. Um, these could be really good motorcycles. They found ways to, you know, get rid of all the girth. It wasn't an XR600 anymore um, doing, doing those kind of, uh, you know, four-stroke things. Uh, they were starting to figure out how to make them tiny and compact. Really, the Husaberg guys were the first ones to do it. A small company called Vertimani uh, was making these gear-driven, handcrafted Italian four-strokes, uh, you know, lightweight four-strokes. And they were coming from bikes like, like this. Anybody know what that one is? Come on, guess. ATK. <laughs> yep that's an atk uh 604 and this was back when atk was made in laguna beach <laughs> so this is probably 88 87 or 88 uh man and that that bike was very thin and narrow except for that giant one lunger of a motor down in there and uh and that was when ron wood was able to make these um four stroke motors really really rip uh and but they were heavy, 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 and th and all the weight was in the motor. <laughs> so you start seeing some of the some of the history here. It was like, hey, four strokes are kind of coming back. We're going to put a good four stroke motor, and this is when there was four stroke nationals um, because everybody was racing two strokes, and they had four stroke nationals for um, places to race these exotic bikes. And that brings us to to this era here, which is. This is a story I did in um, Cycle World, and this was back in 97, where we were taking bikes like XR400s and KLR250s and turning them into 350s. And it was that time when could, could we modify one of these Japanese bikes, put better suspension, modify this play bike or this trail bike into a four-stroke, but they were still heavy, and they were nowhere near competitive to... Um, to a four to a current two stroke uh just they they just didn't they needed at that time they easily needed double the displacement to make the similar amount of horsepower they were carbureted so they didn't have the same kind of throttle responses like our new fuel injected four strokes uh do uh of course like i said weight um and they were very unreliable especially the air-cooled ones that <laughs> they were just pushing the limits on everything to get the kind of kind of kind of power out of it this is kind of the birth of the of where all of our modern four strokes are coming from, and you you kind of I, I was lucky to ride all these things and and I roll back to the Cannondale, which was just a it was a freak because all of a sudden they were doing fuel injection on a four stroke with a cylinder head turned around backwards and kind of like a Yamaha in a lot of ways. And I know Yamaha says they never copied it, but I'm sure they had one in their shop at one point or another. There's some reasons why that engine architecture works and can be really good you see it especially on the 250 the smaller bike because all of a sudden they can get so much more power because the downdraft you know intake and stuff like that they have the room to play with the exhaust tuning um and things of that nature it changes the cg on the bike whether that's a good thing or a bad thing it's a characteristic it's a certain type of thing and now we're getting to the point where we can tune these bikes with our phone with an app in the phone you you can literally kill the power increase the power not really increase it you can change the feel of it um you can get a little bit more power and if you do stuff to modify the bike to get more power exhaust for instance or change cams you can play around with the tuning inside of the ignition without having to go to a complete accessory um ecu something like that to to make it go but um you know kind of seeing all these evolutions of crazy four strokes you know what the the you know the what the Husaberg guys did to shrink that motor down and of course if you know the story of Husaberg um, those guys went to KTM 
before there was before Husky came back and they had, you know, so Husaberg was part of KTM. Still, when you get a KTM part, it still has Husaberg on the the side of the box because it's a brand that they own. And essentially they were kind of grooming Husaberg to be what Husky is now. And then when they were uh, basically gifted the uh, the Husqvarna brand from uh, from the Germans, uh, where BMW had it for a while, uh, they took it and ran with it, and it's it's history now. Look at those things; they're <laughs> come come full circle. And I don't know. I, I wonder where the Husaberg guys are. <laughs> they, they 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 need to let them do another Skunk Works project like that uh, that that seventy degree four stroke because uh, I think that's why my KTM five hundred is so good. They did a really good job adjusting the fuel injection. So I will run through the uh, questions again real quick. See what we're. Um, Talking, I see we got some uh, got some questions. Let's see, worst idea ever. Uh, yeah, me doing this podcast. You're right. Yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> um, an ATK ran at the mint. <laughs> did it? Did it finish? Uh, yeah, the ATK had a counter shaft rear brake. That's true. It had the chain torque eliminator, uh, which was also you know kind of interesting. Horse uh, horse Lightner who who um, built that built that bike uh always had some crazy ideas and he took his ideas and went out into the mountain bike industry and now he makes some of the best little nuggets for trucks or his company amp uh research makes really neat little parts for trucks i run their bed extender and bed steps uh, on all of my uh all of my trucks so uh kind of cool let's see um cannondale yep cannondale I remember seeing a cannondale i rode the first cannondale so the funny thing is, if you own a Cannondale, if you search the internet, uh, you will find the Jimmy Lewis map. So if your Cannondale doesn't run very good, find that map because they actually had, used to use a palm. Remember the palm device? In the palm, you'd plug it into your computer and you could change the ignitions uh, out on the trail. Imagine that. That's so, wow, so 2000, I guess now. So this is nothing new, but uh, everybody will be doing it soon. Okay, um, let's see. Yes, Chris Crandall rode the hell out of those ATKs. A lot of the guys did. <laughs> they used to have a pretty strong effort. I, I raced one in a National Heron Hound. I think I won the four-stroke A-class on it one time uh, up in Utah um, back when uh, when they'd moved out there. It was the, it was the one that evolved into the single-sided uh, frame that had oil in it and stuff. Um, kind of uh, kind of interesting. They're, they're still out there. You can buy them all day long on the, on the Craigslists and stuff. Uh, okay. So I think that's about it. We're going to start wrapping this, uh, rep, wrapping this sucker up, uh, fun trip down history lane. I dug up all these old photos from when I was doing testing at both the uh, cycle world. And I don't have a lot of these tear sheets from the dirt rider age cause everything kind of went digital there. But by then, um, four strokes were pretty well established and, and now you can see where everything's, uh, Everything's gone. In fact, back then I was way ahead of this curve because I was racing XR80s in Supercross in some guy's backyard in Thousand Oaks. And uh, we'll just leave it with that. I got a check on the wall right back up there. I made a uh, $1,460 uh, racing in XR80 in some guy's backyard in Thousand Oaks. That's Langtown. So thanks for everybody for joining. Uh, I will dig through the questions and find somebody to send out a t-shirt to, uh, buy t-shirts on dirt bike test and you have to buy them like tonight because I won't send them out. I'm going to send them out tomorrow and then I'm going to take a break cause I'm going to go, uh, riding my dirt bike. I'm going to go riding that Yamaha that's sitting right behind me. I'm supposed to get a pipe for it real soon. Um, please talk about the KTM. 450 XCF. Didn't I just talk about that? Search KTM 450 XCF on dirtbiketest.com and you will get a boatload of information. Um, let's see, the 2019. Well, I haven't ridden the 2000, have I? No, I, ha I rode the 250 XCF, but not the, uh, the 19 450 XCF. Are my classes full? Uh, this weekend, I think I have one spot. But I don't talk about my classes on this on this uh, podcast because I try not to contaminate the waters with my personal opinions ever that much. You know what I really think? <laughs> hey, nobody's asked me about how how come how come nobody's asking me about the the clutch hub bearing on the Honda CR four fifty X that um, 
No, you don't want to don't want to know about that. Actually, it was nothing. I didn't see. I wasn't like this little internet twerp that I couldn't just wait to go running to the internet. So I'm still trying to find out what was wrong. But we think it was kind of like a one, uh, one, one in a million thing. Um, and I haven't had any indication that it changed anything inside of that clutch after we went back. Um, we put a little bit more time on it, and it's still um, still kind of the same. But the you want to fix it, uh, recluse, kind of like you saw when we opened the show when I was inside of that. Um, that's a Honda 450R that we put the same uh, the recluse torque drive clutch inside of there. Uh, it's a good it's a good thing. So cool. Um, again, thanks you guys for uh, tuning in. I'm gonna tune out now. Uh, the tequila of the night. I know you were guessing. That was a big thing. Uh, Casadores. It's the old uh, standby. Yep, that's a. It's a good one to uh, base all the other ones off of. So in case you're on your tequila tasting, I have 200 and I think 13 tequilas down at a uh, Romero's. Come by and sit in my bar stool. It's not there yet. Um, maybe that's why we're not back there. I might be holding out on that. And we'll. Uh, I'll quit talking and we'll catch you out on the trail. See ya. <laughs>